Well, this morning kicks off a number of messages about Christmas. And so this morning, I want to talk about the need for Christmas. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We, we understand the point of Christmas, right? We, we, we talk about it. We, we have songs. We have all sorts of traditions, you know. And if you ask someone about what Christmas is, they usually go to a point of, well, it's a baby in a manger. And they're right, right? I mean, that's part of it, but there's more. You know, some say there's, there's wise men and the shepherds. And, and, and with them, I would agree, that's part of Christmas, but yet there's more. You know, some talk about peace. You know, and peace is described and, and talked about when with Christmas comes. And I would agree, but you know where I'm going, right? There's, there's still more. These are a part of the Christmas story, but there's so much more that comes well before the New Testament that talks about Christmas. And, and I want to enlarge our thinking about Christmas this morning. I want, I want to approach it from the backside. And, and sometimes it's good to approach a, a very familiar story like Christmas and, and remind ourselves again of the joy of Christmas by looking at it from a different angle. And so in that, I, I want to go to Genesis 3 and it may seem odd for you, the listener, to have Genesis 3 as the focal point of Christmas, because usually we go to Luke or even Isaiah. But in Genesis 3, we, we find the need for Christmas. George Whitfield, an old Puritan preacher, once remarked about Genesis 3.15. He said um, that it could be accompanied by glad tidings of great joy, for this is the first promise that was made of the Savior to the apostate race of Adam. So there isn't any jingle bells, there isn't any sleigh rides in this passage, um, but I want, I want you to bring your attention to the first need of, of Christmas and the promise of the gospel. So if you haven't already, turn with me, not, not to the city of David, but turn with me to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, and listen carefully as, as we dive in and, and read here the story of redemption prophesied long ago. Um, follow, follow with me as I read. I'm going to read the entire chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all, of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Join me as I pray. Father, we come before your throne this morning and we are asking that you would give us clear understanding of this passage as we study Genesis 3. Father, as we enter this Christmas season, we ask that you would keep our hearts centered on the true meaning of this holiday. Father, as we gather with family and with friends and we exchange gifts and sing songs, remind us of the battle long ago in the garden. Remind us of the fall of mankind and how you didn't leave us to fend for ourselves, but you sent a rescuer. Father, help us this morning to worship you as we hear your word preached. Give us understanding. Cause us to be changed. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I have three points that I want to cover in this passage. And originally when I sat down, I was going to just cover verse 15. But as I began to study, I realized there's so much there prior. And so it kind of expanded. But we're going to go from verses 1 through verse 15 and, and unpack here the need for Christmas. And so we see the battle beginning, the fall of man, and then the promise given. And so the battle begins. When we enter Genesis 3, we were entering a war. You know, in fact, Mary, as she recites her song in Luke 1 about, about the, the blessing of Jesus to come, it's better labeled as a war hymn than a Christmas carol. You know, this is what Mary writes in, in Luke. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's a war hymn. Mary has a villain in mind. When she says this, she's, she's not saying, just have yourself a merry little Christmas. This is significant. It's a war. There's an enemy and there's a victor. And so in Genesis 3, when, when Moses relates the story of the fall, he uses the word enmity in verse 15, which talks and means hatred and strife and hostility. It's a word of warfare. And, and it comes in a time of peace. Uh, folks, this is really peace at this point. When you come into the garden, this is paradise. There's been no struggle at this point. So this, this is coming in in the midst of something, something that's very calm and, and seemingly under control. And then chaos comes. 
war begins. Isn't that the way in our lives too? Just when things seem to be leveling out, just when we get a grasp of what life is, a bomb is dropped on our lap. And we have to then deal with what's happening. We have to discern what's going on. And this happens here. War is knocking at the door of Adam and Eve. But how did they get here? How, how did they get to verse 15? Well, for that answer, we go back to, to the verse one here of chapter three. And it says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Even though this was a real serpent, it was taken over by Satan. He spoke to them as Satan. He took possession of this creature and sought to destroy the human race. You know, the devil is, is jealous of the happiness that Adam and Eve experience. And, and I want you to notice that he doesn't make them sin. Okay, we're gonna get to that. He doesn't make them sin. No, he asks them questions. He says to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? What a damning question. Satan is not only uh, uh, trying to seek it. He's not, he's not trying to do market research. Did, did God really say this? He's not just trying to ask questions for the sake of asking questions. He's trying to persuade her to entertain hard thoughts about God, which will in turn allow her to disobey what was commanded. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Can you imagine the, the, the discussion there? You, really, you know, Eve, you know, you're in this beautiful garden and there's a beautiful tree. Did God actually say that you shouldn't touch that, you shouldn't eat of that? Would, would he really put you in a garden, surround you by this, and then say, don't touch that one? Doesn't he want you to enjoy what he's created? Doesn't he love you? Doesn't he want your best? You know, doesn't it make more sense? You know, Eve, her, she, her answer is, she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. You know, I believe, Jeff, I believe her first mistake was answering Satan. I believe she should have just turned, fled, found her, her, her husband, Adam, found God, and ignored him altogether, but she, she instead entertains this evil one. She, she feels obligated to answer. But honestly, though, she probably was completely flabbergasted to have this animal talking to her. Completely abnormal. This hadn't happened, by the way, at this point. I don't know, if, has anyone had animals talk to you? She hadn't either. She's floored. What, what do I do? I, I guess I answer. But, but in her answer, it brings light to the central issue to the human sin. The human sin issue is, is that we want what we want, right? We, we want what we want. That's why we sin. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. She wants what she wants. And if we flash back, about Satan, this evil one, before he was created, he was once an angel of heaven. And he fell when he desired to be like God. In fact, he might have more than that. He wanted to be God. And so now banished from heaven and God's presence, he comes, he comes to earth. He comes into the garden and is to tempt and to draw away God's firstborn humans. He is, he is there to steal and to kill and destroy. 
And he comes in to question everything about God, about everything God had told him. You know, I want you to notice this is not an accident. He, just, he didn't just walk one day and stumble upon the garden. No, this is, this is calculated. It is deceptive. It's pure evil. But verse 4, it says, The serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, folks, this is the first step towards sin. You begin to question the goodness of God. Every time you sin, you question the goodness of God. We need to understand it. You see that plainly here. And that's what Satan desires to do, to question God. George Whitfield, I quoted him earlier, said of this in this passage, he said, we may be assured we are fallen into and begin to fall by temptations when we, when we begin to think God will not be as good as his word. It's a slippery slope there. And, and so Satan, he centers his accusations against God with a question of his goodness and motive towards man. Why would this God who loves you, why would he withhold something from you? Why would he withhold this, this tree, this fruit? Why would he do that? You know, he's asking, you cannot possibly think that you'll die if you eat fruit. Really? In fact, when you eat it, he says, you'll be like God. You know, this is for your betterment. This is for your advancement, Eve. Now, think of the audacity of this foe. He marches into the paradise of God and slanders him blatantly. He shows no measure of humility for his statue, just, just wretched wickedness and disgust for God. You know, I can imagine him walking in or coming in in some way, shape, or form, grabbing an apple himself and taking a bite to say, see, nothing happened. You know, verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was also be desired to make one wise, she takes. She saw it was good. The Hebrew word for saw literally means to see, to have sight, to understand with your eyes. So again, Jeff here, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, how could Eve know it was good for food unless she saw the serpent eat it as food? She understood it. You may disagree, and that's okay. She saw it. She wanted it. And now Satan has this foothold on Eve. Lust had conceived in her heart, and it'll bring forth sin. And sin being conceived will bring forth death. It says that she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Another preacher said, our senses are the landing ports of our spiritual enemies. How needful is it that resolution of holy Job to say I have made a covenant with my eyes. Our senses are our landing ports. We see it here. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The battle has begun. We're in the midst of this battle. And now in this passage that leads us to the fall. And the fall happens. Verse 7, follow with me. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord. 
uh, Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Satan was right. Their eyes were opened. And what was their first realization? What was the first thing they realized? I'm naked. They, they realized their nakedness. You know, and so the Lord comes, and imagine this with me, he comes again as he normally did daily in the cool of the day to walk with them. They walked with God complete and perfect fellowship with God. And he comes, but they're not found. No, they're hiding. And God calls to them and asks the first question, where are you? Now, I just want you to understand something. God knew where they were. You know, hide and seek with God in the garden wouldn't work very well. He would always win. It's not like God's like, I'm really confused where they're at. He knows. He knows exactly where they are, but God is the perfect counselor. It's the first counseling session, by the way, here in the Bible. And he begins by asking good questions. Where are you? Where have you gone? And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Naked? You're naked, Adam? Who, who told you you were naked? Adam, you've always been naked. This, this isn't new. You know, at the end of chapter 2, verse 25, he writes, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now, now they're ashamed. What, what has changed? It wasn't that they were physically blind, right? It's not that they, they couldn't see that they were naked. No, they knew it, but it didn't bother them before. They had a new consciousness. They had a new awareness of their nakedness, and it, and it left them feeling guilty. It left them feeling ashamed. And as I, as I said, I, I, I'm beginning to study this passage this week, and as I get to this verse, I'm like, I have to deal with this. God was working this because I have to talk about nakedness here. Maybe I'll cause you to blush, but that'll prove my point. Because when we talk about this idea of nakedness, it brings an incredible insight to the dilemma that every single human being faces. To be naked is to be known. It's to be vulnerable. You know, they had no issue whatsoever to be naked before they sinned. It was of no consequence to them. You know, it says plainly, they were unashamed. They were comfortable with it. They, they were open. They were unashamed. They had complete fellowship with, with God and with one another. There was no distress. There was no worry. There was no fretting. They were naked and it didn't bother them. But now, to be naked is to be out of control of the information that someone's getting about you. That's, that's why when we go to the beach, we, we wear a bathing suit, and it's, it's perfectly normal if it's an appropriate bathing suit. But if you were to wear that bathing suit to a wedding ceremony, you'd feel out of place. Now, you just wore it a few minutes ago on the beach and didn't feel out of place at all. 
But if you walk into that wedding ceremony, why is it that you feel out of place? Why, why do you feel like you have to hide? Well, part of it's normal of the, the culture in which we live, but there's an ingrained sense there. You know, we're being exposed, and being exposed horrifies us. The scriptures say that we were built to be known and to be loved. But we've bought the lie that we can only be loved if we're not fully known. All of us are afraid of being exposed for who we really are. If someone were to truly see who we are, we feel they would reject us. We're not only hiding from everyone and hiding our nakedness, we're hiding from ourselves. We cannot bear the thought of admitting to ourselves our own, our own struggles, our own sins. You know, Adam and Eve truly lose something here. They're created perfect. They're created to live in paradise. They're created to have perfect fellowship with the almighty and loving God. And they're created for more than where they're at, they're at now, but now they've lost something. They've, they've lost their righteousness. They lost their perfectness. They lost their holiness. They lost their glory. It's now gone. And they, and they stand now before God completely exposed, ashamed, completely mortified to be known now. We're the same. Every one of us here this morning stand before a holy God, naked, unable to cover ourselves and who we truly are. There are two eyes in this world, only two, that see all of us. And they are just eyes. They, they exude justice and they're truthful eyes and they're holy eyes and righteous eyes. And Hebrews tells us that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must have given account. And the one thing that we cannot escape here this morning in this passage is, is the desire to cover our nakedness. But we need that covering. We can, we can run and hide from God, but he is there and he knows us. You can try to hide yourself and you can try to hide your sin, but God knows. It will be dealt with. There's no denying it. It will be exposed for what it truly is. But we believe, we've bought into the lie that the only way that I will be loved is if I cover up my sin. I need to hide from others. And Adam and Eve do that. They sow fig leaves. And we feel we need to hide in the midst of life and the things in life. And Adam and Eve do that. They hide within the trees. Maybe God won't see. We need to hide from the truth. We don't want to admit that we've sinned. And Adam and Eve do that when they, they blame someone else beside themselves. And we can try to blame shift and say, well, someone else brought this. It's not my fault. And we see that with Adam and Eve. But they're naked and they know it. And you see your own nakedness. And so you're sure that you cannot be known and you cannot be loved at the same time. And we see this idea of nakedness and covering in, in relationships and dating. Okay? Dating is like going shopping for a used car. Right? Andrew Whelan was in the first service and I embarrassed him thoroughly. But... When you're buying a used car, they're trying to cover up something, right? Dating is that way. You're trying to cover up something. And, and dating, you're, you're trying to cover up your flaws. 
You're, you're trying to, to, to cover up maybe sin, issues that you have in your life. And you want to put your best foot forward. So if your apartment's a mess and you've been asked out and, and you think, well, we'll meet there, you think, well, my apartment's a mess, so maybe we'll meet somewhere else. You know, you don't want them to see how you live. Or you do a deep cleaning that's never happened the first seven years you lived there and you just gross out what you find. You just don't want to, you, want, you don't want them to see what's truly there. You know, in dating relationship, you dress in a different way, right? You, you, you want to find clothes that hide your flaws. Um, men don't wear belly shirts when they have a big belly. You know, that's, that's a good thing, by the way. You want to look good, right? You, you want to present yourself in a way that's appealing to the other person. Women, women wear makeup and, and they put on perfume. Men shave, hopefully, and comb their hair and wear deodorant. I mean, there's, there's things that we do in a dating relationship because we don't want to be seen. You know, in a conversation, you notice that in this, when you're getting to know, it, you want to go to topics that you know. You don't want to go to topics that you don't know because then you'll look like you don't know anything. You go where you know. You know, in, in this relationship and in our lives, you, you want to see, but you don't want to be seen. And in that, you're you're trying to cover up. But outside of relationships, out of that illustration, we live in such a way to hide from others. The things that drive you, maybe it's work. You, you've learned to work hard, to be busy, to work till you're exhausted. Or maybe you like to serve, and so you, you want to serve people, but you have to be the one that, that does it. You have to be the one that does it all. You have to be there for them no matter what. You're, you're, you're the person that they count on. You cannot disappoint or the parent here that has to have the same childhood for their kids. So you strive to give them all that you think they really need. You have to have a big pile of presents under the Christmas tree because you had that. And it has to be even when you and your kids. And, and, you, and maybe you're a parent that has to celebrate every holiday that there possibly is. You know what I'm talking about? It's like pancake day. Guys, pancake breakfast. It's bagel day. It's hat day. You want to celebrate everything. You have to do this because you want your kids to experience something special all the time. You have to. Or maybe you're an extremely private person. No one, no one should ever know who you really are. You have to put up this tough exterior to prove to them that you can make it on your own. Or, or you're the person that has to look good. You have to look good. You have to dress nicely. You cannot leave the house unless your hair is done and that you're dressed the way that you need to be dressed because you, you don't want them to see who you are. You know what all of those things are? They're all fig leaves. They're coverings. They're coverings that we've brought in ourselves to cover up who we are. They cover up what we're afraid of. You know, we do work or service or supplying for others or clothes. They're all fig leaves. And you feel when you're not doing this that you're not covered, you're not accepted. And so you look frantically to cover up. I have to, I have to cover myself. And I cannot, I cannot let someone see me for who I truly am. And I'm broken. 
But God sees you. God sees all of you. And just like Adam and Eve, I hate it. You know, our sin causes us to hate the gaze of God in our lives. This is why your neighbor or your coworker rejects the gospel. This is why. They don't want to recognize that God sees them as they truly are. This is why your kids or your family members or those people you're really close to and you're preaching and you're sharing the gospel and you're pouring it out and you want to direct them to God and they reject it. They don't want anything to do with it because they know that God sees them as they truly are and they're afraid. They need those covers. I was just sharing this in the Sunday school class. I didn't share it in the first service, but I was reading in the midst of this week and came across a story. It was interesting of a pastor teaching a class at a Bible college and a course. And after the course, a girl, a freshman comes up and just lets him have it and says how wrong he was and that she feels that God is not who he is, that she's struggling to even believe in God and going down the line. And he astutely says to her, what has changed in your life in the last year? Because he recognized she came from a good Christian home. And after a while, she's kind of put off and, 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 and rejects that question, like, well, I'm not going to tell you. And after a while, she softens, and she then relays that she's been living with her boyfriend. The, the sin in her life causes her to cover up and then, then deflect anything that could possibly interfere with what she really wanted. She, she needed that covering, and her way was to, to argue, to defend, to say, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. People cover themselves with their own fig leaves. And no matter how hard you try to patch up your own righteousness, God sees you. God knows you. And you have that sense, we are built with that, that sense of condemnation that the conscience is saying to us, you can't hide. You're guilty. And you need to deal with this. You can't cover yourself. And the truth of it is, in every instance in our lives, whether you're sitting here as a believer or you're not, you're rejected. The truth of it is, is that you need a rescuer. You need hope outside of yourself. And so Adam and Eve here in this passage, they're caught in their open rebellion of God. And they're now, they're now fully aware of their nakedness now because of sin. They're ashamed. They're also unwilling to admit they're wrong. They're, they're unwilling to, to deal with it. You know, they blame everyone else. And they try to shift the blame. It's, it's, it's either the wife or it's Satan or it's some other circumstance, but it's not them. They need a rescue and they don't even realize it. But God doesn't leave them there. God, God doesn't come and, and condemn them and say, good luck. He doesn't leave them. He gives a promise to them. And that promise is the point of Christmas. The promise is given there. God answers the threat of the enemy in verse 14. He says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring or seed and her offspring and seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Christmas reminds us that God did not leave us naked and ashamed. 
He didn't leave us doomed. He sent a rescuer. First, verse 15, by, called by theologians as the Proto-Evangelum, which is the first gospel message. It, it points to the significance of Christmas because it's all about the gospel. I'm never going to get tired of talking about the gospel, folks. It's going to come up every week because that's where my hope lies. And Christmas is about the gospel. Christmas is about the need for a rescuer. And so we enjoy the holiday of Christmas. We enjoy traditions, and I want you to encourage you to do that, traditions with your family surrounding this holiday, whether it's Christmas trees or lights or gifts or food. That's a good thing to celebrate and enjoy. Enjoy that. Be thankful for that, but don't miss the point. Don't miss the focus, the need for Christmas. And it was because the rescuer to come. So if you're here this morning and, and Christmas is only the outward celebrations, I want to encourage you to not, not give that up, but understand the focus here. I don't want you to miss Christmas. And the idea for Christmas comes from Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve fall and they sin. They're here, they're naked and shamed, unable to save themselves. They brought reproach upon themselves and all that would come after them. And what hope do they have? What, what future is there now? They're naked and afraid, and they need someone to cover them. It reminds me again this week I, bro, how God does this. I'm studying this, and, and without fail, I have little girls. My four-year-old comes downstairs minutes after I put her to bed over some issue. And walking through that, all right, Avery, you need to go back to bed. But, Dad, I need to be covered up. Avery, you know how to do that. No, Dad, I need you to cover me. I thought again. No, they tried to cover themselves, right? They, they sewed fig leaves. They're going to try to make their covering. But they need God. They need God to cover them. And our, our only answer to the sin issue that we recognize in our own life, the only answer is, is to be naked and not ashamed. And the only way to do that is through Jesus Christ. Romans 4, 7 and 8 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And as Paul is talking about imputation, you know, the theology, the, the term that Christ has covered our sins on the cross. You know, a big term, big understanding, but very important. You know, if I go to, to lunch with you and we, we finish the meal and the check comes, you know, we use the slang in our culture. I say, I got you covered. What, what, I, mean, what am I meaning? I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to take care of that bill. Christ covers us. He, he pays for our sins. And, and, and God imputed Christ's righteousness into our account when he died on the cross. And God says to Adam and Eve in verse 15, I will send a rescuer and he will be beaten and he will be bruised but he will conquer this foe. He'll be born of a virgin and he will come to rescue for your sins and he will crush that old foe, that liar, that coward. He will redeem you. God isn't done in this world. I'm sure most of you have kept up with the news this past week, what's transpired in California, horrific shooting. 
14 people, as far as I, I've heard now, have lost their lives. Some are also in critical condition. And it's senseless. It's evil to think of this. And, and I'm reading and following as the days are unfolding and, and people responding. Those are in public forum of, of the issues here. And those, it usually goes to the political parties and those are expressing their, their mourning or their thoughts and prayers with the victims and their families. Every time I read that, I think, please, please continue to pray. I don't care if he's a Christian, but I know God hears. But later in that evening, in the midst of the cultural dynamic that's happening in our, in our country, the New York Daily News released the front page of what was going to be their next morning run. And the headline of it was, God isn't fixing this. Of which they quote all these GOP candidates and saying, you know, our thoughts and prayers that God would do this. And their response is, God isn't fixing this. Stop. You know, I don't really want to get into a political discussion. That's not my point. I bring this to you because even in our world, people want to race and find a way to, to remove evil. They, they don't, they're not long for that. And so they long, though, for a day when evil will be gone. You know, if you read just a chapter over in Genesis 4, following the banishment of Adam and Eve, they go and they start having kids. And what happens to Cain and Abel? You know, as, as a result of the fall, a result of sin, murder is introduced to the human experience. And we've seen a lot of murder since. And the thing that I keep thinking in the midst of all of this in our culture is, the only way to fix this problem and the only person that can fix this problem is King Jesus. God will fix this. You know, Acts 17 says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who has been appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is no Ordinary man, this is King Jesus, and he will fix this world. Not our political decisions, not our laws, not our well wishes or good intentions. God will fix our world. And for ages and ages and ages, we will sing the praises of our God and King. And when God fixes it, you will not read it in the New York Daily News. We wait for King Jesus. Folks, the bad guys lose. The good guys win. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity we've had to come and to worship. We've come and to hear your word. I thank you that we can celebrate Christmas. I thank you for the, the glorious opportunity that you give us in our culture that is so away from you to talk about Christmas, to engage with our neighbors and our family and our friends about Christmas. How amazing is it, God, that you still allow this? This is still part of our culture, and, and we can I'm sure get 
discouraged at the, the motive and the direction the culture is going, but yet we can talk about this. And I pray, Father, that we will do this in a gospel-centered way, that we will point people to an understanding, God, of, of, of what Christmas is about. Help me to do that, God. Help me not to, to be distracted in things in, in life, to be distracted by my to-do list, God. Help me to, to look for opportunities to, to share others, share with others the hope that I have and the hope of Christmas. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that, that have come and recognized that they're naked and they've tried to cover themselves. And all the attempts that they've made have fallen short. And I ask that you would bring those questions and those concerns and the and the realization that they have no hope outside of this world. And that they would trust in you, God, for salvation. They'd recognize that they're a sinner. That they've sinned against a holy God. And yet you sent your son to die for them. To pay for those sins. And they don't have to do anything other than trusting in you. There is no work involved. I pray, God, that you would bring a sense of urgency to their heart to know that they need to talk with you. They would seek me or the other pastors or elders to understand more fully the gospel, the good news that Christ came to die for them. Father, help us to serve you faithfully. Help those of us here that our believers, to, to look for ways to preach your gospel in the world that you've placed us. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.